Well, welcome to each of you. It is so good for us to be together, and uh, it's encouraging for me, obviously, to look down and see Gert in her regular place. Um, I didn't know if that would be possible or not, and, uh, but if she felt well enough to be here, I know healing from what she has been through is not merely physical, but also is emotional and spiritual, and I think her presence here this morning is it's certainly good for her and for all of us, and again, I say we praise God for what he is doing in our midst. Uh, I was able to get a good night's sleep last night since Aaron came in and was on duty, so um, I need to preach this morning. I need to preach. Open your Bible this morning to Genesis 29. The title of my message this morning is Good News for the Week. Now, I preach from this chapter I went back and looked. It was April 22nd of, 19, of 2022, so about 16 months ago. I preached a message on loving the church, and I used the example of Rachel and Leah. Some of you might remember that. Uh, we're looking at somewhat the same passage of Scripture, but there are some spiritual lessons that I hope this morning you and I can embrace. And this morning in particular is going to be one of, the, one of the things about this message is I'm convinced that God's Spirit is going to speak to us individually through the power of His Word. And, and you're going to go away from here with some things you may have heard that the person beside you didn't hear or didn't speak to them, but it spoke to you and vice versa. Before I read this chapter, make a few comments. One of the things I find in the Bible that we're struck with Immediately when we begin to encounter accounts of marriage and family is that the Bible is most unsentimental. It's utterly realistic in portraying that to not be married is hard and can be devastating. But to be married is hard <laughs> and can be devastating. And accepting the biblical understanding um, of that is very difficult because in our secular society today, there's really no support of that. On one hand, we have people with a growing cynicism about marriage because I shared recently in a message Recent research in America shows that the expected lifespan or span of a marriage today is eight years. On the other hand, which I think is the other ditch on the road, is in many of our churches, even conservative churches, there's a tendency for us to think and to say, ah, marriage... Marriage, that's what it's all about. And I find the Bible says both of those are wrong. Nowhere in Scripture does Jesus say, be married. You, know, you, you need to seek to be married, that that's where it is. Rather, the Scriptures show us both the strengths of marriage and the call for our marriages to reflect the relationship of Christ and the church. But more than that, the scriptures point to all of us that Jesus is the only relationship that we need. And often in our conservative circles, we, we, we have erred as well because we've held as though there's a commandment in scripture to be married. And marriage is a wonderful thing, don't get me wrong. It is. But Jesus is what we need. That relationship is paramount. So I want to read Genesis 29, and then I invite you to keep your Bible open there, because the rest of the message, I'll just say, I, as in verse 33, or as in verse 29, and you can glance there, and I'm not going to go back and read it again. Uh, this is a story in the life of Jacob. Begin in verse, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey, and came into the land of the people of the east, and he looked, and behold, a well in the field. And lo, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks, and a great stone was upon the well's mouth. 
And thither were all the flocks gathered, and they rolled the stone from the well's mouth, and watered the sheep, and put the stone again upon the well's mouth in his place. And Jacob said unto them, My brethren, whence be ye? And they said, Of Haran are we. And he said unto them, Know ye Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said unto them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And behold, Rachel his daughter cometh with the sheep. And he said, Well, lo, it is yet high day, neither is it time that the cattle should be watered together. Water ye the sheep, and go and feed them. And they said, We cannot, until all the flocks be gathered together, until they roll the stone from the well's mouth, then we water the sheep. And while he yet spake with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth, watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's brother and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And it came to pass when Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely thou art my bone and my flesh. And he abode with him the space of a month. And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. Laban said, It's better I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had for her. And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. And it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to him. And he went in unto her. And Laban gave unto his daughter Leah Zilpah, his maid, for an handmaid. And it came to pass that in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this thou hast done unto me? Did not I serve with thee for Rachel? Wherefore then hast thou beguiled me? And Laban said, It must not be done, so done in our country, to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and we will give thee this also for the service which thou shalt serve with me yet seven other years. And Jacob did so, and fulfilled her week. And he gave him Rachel his daughter to wife also. And Laban gave to Rachel his daughter Bilhah his maid, handmaid, to be her maid. And he went in also unto Rachel, and he loved also Rachel more than Leah, and served with him yet seven other years. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bare a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi. And she conceived again and bare a son and she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and left bearing. First of all, there are two things we need to know as for background for this story. One of those is that Jacob came from a very special family. But he also came from a family that was filled with suffering. Jacob had a grandfather named, yeah, Abraham. And God came to Abraham one day and he said, Abraham, 
Have you seen all of the misery? Have you seen all the suffering in the world? Have you seen all the death in the world? I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to redeem the world. And I'm going to do that by sending my son, and I'm going to send my son through your family. I have chosen you, Abraham. Now listen, Abraham, so you understand what this entails. You will have many descendants, but in each generation, there will be one that will be the seed bearer. There will be one that would be designated the head. And it's the responsibility of that one to faithfully teach his family. Because through your descendants, one day, the Messiah will come. Well, that was the special family that Jacob was born into. For Abraham had Isaac, and then Isaac was the father of Jacob. But in spite of the special family that Jacob was born into, he also was born into a family that had a lot of suffering. You see, when Isaac was about to become a father, Rebekah, his wife, conceived twins. And God revealed to Rebekah and to Isaac that the second, the younger of the two twins, would be the designated seed bearer. That the elder would serve the younger. Months later, when the babies were born, Esau was born first, and then Jacob. But Isaac deliberately rejected and ignored what God had told him. And he chose to place his affection and his favoritism on Esau. And as a result, devastation wreaked on both boys as they grew up. Isaac was a favorite uh, favored Esau, and Jacob was favored by his mother. And there was not good blood between the two of them. Their characters were damaged because of their father's affection. Esau grew up as a willful man with little self-control because of the way Isaac doted on him and made him the favorite, and Jacob turned out to be a manipulator and a deceiver and a liar. Not only relating to his brother, but also, if you recall, when it came time for Isaac to convey that special blessing onto Esau, onto the one who was to be the seed bearer, Jacob, with the aid of his mother, lied and deceived his father to get that blessing. And when Esau realized what had happened, he vowed to kill his brother. Rebekah influences Isaac to tell Jacob, you need to leave. You need to leave, you need to go back across the Fertile Crescent, back to your mother's family, to find a wife, and also to escape the wrath of your brother. Because Esau said, when my father is dead, I will kill him. So Jacob left. And it was all ruined. Jacob has no position in his family now. He had no faith. He had no money. He was miles from home. It was all ruined. Jacob, who was designated to be the seed bearer, now feels so far from family and from his God and from his sense of purpose. He has to start all over again. 
But on that journey, he has encounters with God, as you recall. And that now brings us up to the passage that I just read, to chapter 29. But now this story in chapter 29 really has two parts. And, and, and I'm going to call it, one is Laban's plot, his plan. And the other is Leah's lot, what Leah finds herself in. Let's talk about Laban first. Laban is Jacob's uncle, his mother Rebekah's brother. But Laban does not fear God. They are an idolatrous people. All right? Laban has taken Jacob into his house. Remember, there probably had been no contact between Jacob and Laban. We keep up with relatives, right? But all these years, I'm sure his mother had told Jacob about her family. He knew probably he had an uncle Laban, but probably had never seen him, never laid eyes on him. But after that encounter at the well and Rachel running and telling Laban and Jacob telling about his mother, Laban says, you, you are my family. You are flesh of, you are bone of my bone. You are flesh. We are related. And he takes Jacob in, kind of like a charity case. And Jacob is there for a month. And Laban sees during that month that this young man has potential. This young man has shepherding skill. And you know, if I can persuade him to stay and work for me, he could make me wealthy. Now, that's if I can afford him. So he goes to Jacob and he says, Jacob, I, you know, you shouldn't work me for nothing. I mean, I need to pay you something. What, what would it take? What do I need to pay you to, to work for me? And Jacob said, I will work for you for seven years. For your daughter Rachel. If you'll give me your daughter Rachel in marriage, I will work for you for seven years. Now, that was a very foolish mistake on Jacob's part. When you're dealing with a, a, a conniver, you never expose your weakness. And when Jacob said that to Laban, Laban knew he had him. He knew he had him. And Laban says, Wow. I mean, it'd be better for me to let you marry my daughter than some stranger. So, yeah, stay with me. Notice Laban never said yes. What Laban said to Jacob was, was words that would make Jacob think that he said yes. But he always could come back and say, Jacob, read the fine print. I never said yes. I said it'd be better for you to marry my daughter than some stranger. You see, Jacob made a mistake because Jacob had met his match. Laban also is a conniver. And Laban's had about 25 more years experience than what Jacob has had. Laban sees very quickly that this is a way for him to get wealthy. And it also could take care of another potential problem. You see... Laban has a daughter who he does not sure he's ever going to be able to marry off. Certainly not get much dowry for. And so Laban sees very quickly this situation can take care of both of those issues. Verse 16 says Laban had two daughters. Now when you first read this, you, normally in Scripture sons are listed. But apparently the two daughters were the oldest. But if you read a couple chapters later, we found Laban does have sons. So he had sons, but they probably were younger. And, and at the time when Jacob got there, they probably were young girls. But verse 17 is all about beauty. Now you look in different translations, and they all talk about Leah's eyes. And some say she had delicate eyes, some say she had broken eyes, some say she had weak eyes. But the issue with Leah was not about her vision. The issue was, otherwise it would have said, well, Leah has such and such eyes, but Rachel can see well. It doesn't say that. It says, but Rachel was well favored. Rachel was gorgeous. Rachel was unforgettably beautiful. You see, verse 17 tells us that the issue here was not about how they looked, but it was about how they looked. 
It wasn't about how they looked, but how they looked. You understand what I'm saying? I don't know what the issue was, but Leah, there's something about her eyes. I don't know if she was cross-eyed or her eyes protruded or she had a droopy eye. Or I don't know what it was, but it was significant enough that there was a big difference in how they looked. And Laban could obviously just kick that can down the road. But eventually, Leo either was going to be a weight around his neck, staying in the home for the rest of her life, or he was going to find some way to marry her. And Laban sees an opportunity here. You see, the Bible is brutally frank. Now, now, we can say this morning, well, thankfully, we're beyond all that. Are we? Are we beyond evaluating people by physical appearance? Well, Laban sees opportunity here to take care of both of these, and because um, that's the kind of man Laban was. So what did Laban do? Jacob has said, I'll work for you for seven years. And Laban's response was, well, it's better for me to let give Rachel to you than to some stranger. Notice Laban didn't say yes. But he said things that made Jacob think he had said yes. Jacob worked for the seven years, then he demanded his wife, Rachel. And the custom of the time was a week-long marriage celebration with much drinking and feasting. And so Laban set that up all the time, realizing what he was going to do. And I think Jacob was happier probably than most any groom going into that wedding week. Because you see, of all the things that had gone wrong in Jacob's life since he had left home, the loss of that promise of being the seed bearer. Separation from his father and mother. Isolation from his brother who hated him. Loss of everything. Now in a strange land. Finally, something was going to be right. Finally, he was going to marry Rachel. And things were going to be good. Finally, his life was going to have meaning. He was going to be happy. He put his focus, his confidence on this. Rachel was going to make things better. Well, the wedding feast began, and toward evening, probably with a lot of drinking and a lot of drunkenness, Laban brought his daughter, veiled, to Jacob, and they had their first night together. And in verse 25, it's, the Hebrew literally says, and it's a great narrative ploy, but when morning came, behold, it was Leah. Jacob immediately confronts Laban. Why have you beguiled me? What have you done to me? Why did you deceive me? And Laban very innocently says, what are you talking about? I mean, you didn't know that in, in, in our custom here, uh, we can't marry the younger before the older. Um, fulfill this week of marriage festivities, and then you can have Rachel for another seven years. And I think Jacob was so distraught that he agreed. I mean, Rachel was going to be his wife then. What's waiting seven more days? So distraught, Jacob agrees. He fulfills a week-long marriage feast. He then is given Rachel, but he's then obligated for seven years of work without pay. Now I want you to join me this morning and focusing on Leah and the nightmare that she finds herself in. Because of the greed and manipulation of her father 
and Jacob, she's thrown into an impossible situation. Leah, perhaps at this point, I'm sure she had heard so much, having grown up in the same house with her sister Rachel, the same parents, the same siblings, the same relatives, the same friends. I'm sure she had heard an awful lot about her future prospects of being married. And it would be possible for her to harden herself against that and just, you know, this is the way it is. But she finds herself in a situation that is much worse, much weaker position. She now is married to a man who does not love her. In fact, the scripture says he hated her. Not only that, she must live in the same household with the woman who he loves. And to make that worse, that woman is her sister, her nemesis for all these years. Leah is in the worst of situations, not by her choosing but by the manipulation of other people. The last verses of this passage, 32 and 35, are, are the most plaintive to me of her situation. Leah obviously would have understood that, that there's no way out of this. I mean, she couldn't divorce Jacob. She couldn't get out of this relationship. This was to be her plot the rest of her life. But there was very high value in that day in a woman's worth being determined by children. If she could have a child, in particular if she could have a son, maybe, just maybe, things could change between her and Jacob. And Leah begins to have children, and she names them and each time she names them, she longs for and wishes. She has a son and she says, now my husband will love me because I have given him a son. His wife, the love of his life, Rachel, is not able to bear children at this point. Now he will love me. But he doesn't. She conceives again and has a son. He said, well, that, that may have been a fluke. But, but now he'll see, I have given him two sons. She names him Simeon. She said, surely now he will cleave to me. Now he will accept me. Now I will have value. But she doesn't. She conceives a third time. Three sons. Rachel's still barren. Surely now I will have value in this household. Now he will cleave to me. Now I will truly be a wife. She calls him Levi. She conceives a fourth time. But something happened this time. Because we find instead of her saying that word, those words, she now says, this time, this time. I will praise the Lord. The scripture says that God saw that Leah was hated and God drew near to Leah. And God gave her the privilege to join the ancestry line of the Messiah. Remember who Judah was? The Messiah comes through the tribe of Judah. Judah, mothered by Leah, the weakest, the despised, the nobody, the hated, the used, the sold. Well, let me identify a few lessons from the scriptures this morning. There are three that are bad, and they're bad, bad. But then there are three that are good, and, and the good are better than the bad, okay? 
The first of those is, we need to understand this morning that when we sin, we don't merely commit an act of sin. Sin has a way to do us in. You know, we tend to look at sin, we say, well, if we tell a lie, or if we cheat somebody, or if we trample somebody, that that was an act. It's isolated, it was done, it was over. But the scripture clearly says that when we sin, we, we create and release a power in our life. The Bible talks about in New Testament about sin conceiving and bringing forth death. That, that sin, if it's not repented of and forgiven, careens around in our life. And over and over again, it produces sin and pain in other relationships. Look at some of the evidence of that in the passage this morning. Look at how Isaac treated Jacob. Jacob turns right around and treats Leah the same way. Look how Isaac treated Jacob, and Jacob then lies and deceives his father. And because Jacob treats Leah the way he does, Leah's children, Leah's sons, later sell Rachel's son into slavery. You see, sin has a way of producing more sin. From one relationship to another, from one generation to another. It's like throwing a rock into water and watching the ripples go out and out again. There isn't just one splash and then the water's calm again. The ripples go out and out. You see, we never get away from sin. We can't run away from sin. We can't deny that it ever happened. We only can find victory over sin as we repent of it and find forgiveness through the blood of Christ. Only forgiveness can produce atonement. So we don't do sin, sin does us. That's the first bit of bad news this morning. Well, the second bit of bad news is that all of life, if you live long enough, you'll find this more increasingly true. All of life is marked and subject to disappointment. In a way, Leah this morning, this story represents something that's very bad. One of the most disturbing things of this narrative is how it somehow turns on us. Jacob was finally saying, now I got it together. Now I marry this gorgeous woman And things are going so well, and now I will be happy, and now I will find fulfillment in life. And in the morning, it's Leah. It's a miniature of the disillusionment that has followed mankind since the garden. And it's a fact every one of us in this room this morning need to know. No matter what your hopes are for a project, no matter what your hopes are for marriage, No matter what your hopes are for love, no matter what your hopes are for family, no matter what your hopes are for career, in the morning, it will be Leah. You see, no matter what you think is Rachel, no matter what you want to focus on, say, this thing or this person, if I can get this thing or this person, I will have it. In the morning, it's going to be Leah. And the reason we need to understand that is because it's so painful to hear this in other people's lives. Notice I didn't say hear them talk about it. But we see it in the choices that they make, their attitudes, their actions. We we hear people say, essentially, I'm going to have such an awesome career. I'm going to find and marry a hunk of a man. I'm going to find and marry a drop-dead gorgeous woman. I'm going to have this beautiful family with a white picket fence. I'm going to live in such and such a house. I'm going to have such a life. And in the morning, it's always Leah. You see, eventually this realization is going to come through. Eventually, 
we're going to see it. If you're too young today to see it, you eventually will see it. And when you do, there are a couple ways we can respond to that. One of the ways we can respond to that is we can blame the things or the people and say, well, I just got the wrong things. I just got the wrong people. I got the wrong wife. I need a new wife. I got the wrong husband. I need a new husband. I got the wrong job. I need a new job. I'm at the wrong church. I need a new church. Or another option we can do is we can blame ourselves and hate ourselves for the choices we make. Another option we can do is we can blame life and harden ourselves and not ever allow ourselves to hope again in anything. Or there's one other option, and this is the one I hope we can choose, to recognize that life is full of disappointments. And we come to the realization that there isn't a Rachel or a job or a family or a church or a career or anything that will make me truly happy. We realize that, that that's out there somewhere else in a different world. That, that I'm not made for that, for this. And we're not. We are made, created for relationship with God. And we can realize then that Jesus is the only true Rachel. Because anything else in the morning is going to be Leah. Jesus is the one that we pursue. Well, that was some bad news. But there's one other aspect that even makes it worse. And that is when we choose to idol, make idols of things or people. In particular, is it bad when we idolize family? Now that may found, sound strange, but it's very easy for us to be tempted to put our hope in someone or something. That, that this is going to make us loved. You know, if I can get in this relationship, if I can marry this person, if I can have children, if I can be in a relationship, that's going to make me feel valued. Now I'm going to feel appreciated and understood. Now notice, those are not idols of our culture. Those are often idols within our conservative circles. Jacob thought, if I can just marry Rachel, have this wonderful family, this wonderful marriage. Leah thought, if I can just have children, just have sons, everything will be okay. And it, it didn't work for either of them. We need to realize this morning that even when we build our life on a Christian marriage and a Christian family and we want that white picket fence, the Bible comes against all that. This morning we have a biblical narrative that, that comes against elevating those traditional values to that level. Because anything that is elevated above our relationship with Jesus Christ is what? It's idolatry. It's idolatry. And if we build, those of us who are married, if you build your life on a spouse... At the very best, you're going to be emotionally dependent or controlling or judgmental. And if that spouse has any problems, you're going to fall to pieces. You're not going to be of any help to them. If you build your life on your children, at, at least you're going to try to live your life through your children. And they're going to grow to resent you. Or, or not have any identity of their own. Or at worst, you become controlling of them. They can never do enough right. They can never be perfect enough. Because it's all about you. Again and again, we see Leah saying, ah, oh, three times, a son. 
Now I fit in with traditional values. Now my husband will love me. If I, even if I'm an unattractive woman, if I can have children, and she did have children. She had six sons and a daughter, and it still didn't work. She still is not loved nor respected by her husband. Now, now if Leah had a, a better husband, maybe she wouldn't have had that delusion for as long as she did. But she learned early when she started having children, that making idols of family members does not bring happiness. Well, that's the bad news. Sin does us. Life is full of disappointment. In the morning, it's always Leah. And it gets worse if we choose idols in our lives. Well, let, let's look at the good, good news. It's better. I was like then on the good stuff. First thing I want us to understand, I think we see very clearly here, is that God works with very weak people. Now, right away, there's some people, and maybe some of you this morning say, you know, that's one thing I don't like about the Bible. You look at this passage, look at Jacob and Laban, how badly they treated people, and somehow they're elevated? Why are they even in the Bible? Polygamy, bigamy, and I can spend time this morning, I can show you in Scripture that, that God never supported that. And I don't think any of us this morning would say, because we have Genesis 29, that that is God's prescription for how you're supposed to have a family. We can see clearly the misery of having a family based on those values. But that's generally not the real problem for people that have trouble with a story like this in the Bible. The main problem is that is it's a spiritual paradigm that I hope I can, I can smash this morning. And that is that the Bible should be a book of virtues and people that we should emulate. When we read the Bible and we see such willful wrong and pain and ugly consequences of sin, there's something else that wants to scream. What's going on here? Because we tend to want to think that the Bible should be a book of virtues. We should see perfect people that we want to emulate. And if we have that approach to the Bible, we do not understand the gospel. You see, the gospel is not about role models. The gospel is not about emulating great people. It's not about a museum of the saints. The Bible gives us men and women again and again and again and again who when God continues to work with them, even when they don't understand His grace, even when they resist His grace, even when they don't seek His grace. It's story after story like this in the Bible. So the question we ask you this morning, why are those stories in the Bible? Listen to me this morning. If we think that the Bible should just be a book of virtues and a book of perfect people who we are to emulate, we are then ascribing Christianity in the same realm of many other religions in the Bible. Most religions have God in heaven looking down a ladder to earth. And he's saying to the people on the earth, perform, emulate the role models, do good. And if you try hard enough, you can climb this ladder to heaven. But that's not what the Bible says. Jesus said you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. God didn't send a ladder. He didn't, doesn't have a ladder there for us to climb. We cannot climb the ladder. God sent Jesus to be the ladder. He sent him to be the ladder. He's not a God who says to perform. He's a God who says, I will send my son Jesus to the earth to live the life that you should have lived and die the death that you deserved to die. And so that's the reason that the Bible stories are not stories just about perfect people. 
role models, but they're stories of weak people like you and me. And the wonderful part of this news is that doesn't leave any of us out. God works with the weakest. That includes all of us, all of mankind. God works with weak people. That's the first good news I want to share this morning. The second is, God works through weak people. Laban really hurt his daughter. Jacob really hurt his wife. And yet, if we understand how God used Laban and Jacob in their lives, in Leah's life, we'll see that it was only as Laban treated Jacob the way he did, that Jacob begins to be humbled. In the chapters following, we'll see that Jacob turns around. Because Jacob sees in Laban himself, and he hates it. And Leah, it's only because of Laban's work in her life that she begins, comes to an understanding of who God is. God works in our life through weak people. Maybe this morning there's a Laban in your life. And rather than screaming out to God, what in the world are you doing? Why do you allow this person in my life? We need to realize that God not only works with weak people, but he works through other weak people to affect our life. Well, the third bit of good news is that God is attracted to the weakest, the poorest, the most unloved, the most despised. And that's what's so astounding about Leah. One important thing to notice as we watch her cry out to God and how she wants her husband to love her is the vocabulary she uses. In the Old Testament Hebrew, there are two words for God. One is Elohim, which is translated God, a very generic term of God. The heathens even use that. It's the great one. But when God related to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, when he was revealing his plan of salvation through this established messianic line, he gave them a personal name. He said, I am Yahweh. And that is translated the Lord, not God. Every time in the Old Testament it appears. Notice in the last verses, verse 32 to 35, what word Leah uses. She doesn't say Elohim, God. She says Yahweh, Lord. Where did she learn Yahweh? She didn't learn it from her father. He was an idolatrous man. Very clearly, she learned that through Jacob. Jacob's the only one that could have come to that household that had an understanding of his calling, of the special family he was part of. And now, because she was his wife, she was grafted in, as it were. And she embraced that. She embraced through that oppression, she embraced Elohim. She says, now I will praise the Lord. And that came about because of the oppression that she had. You see, what's so fascinating is that she turned to her husbands after her first three sons. But after the fourth son, something radically changes. After the first three sons, she continues to idolize that dream and hang on to that sons. Three sons, now my husband will love me. Now he will love me. Surely now he will love me. But in the fourth son, she says, now I will praise the Lord. And I think at that moment, she got her life back. She got purpose. She was delivered from the torment of those people. Now, I know it still was tough for her to live there in that situation, but, but she gets the privilege now of being the mother of the ancestor of the Messiah. She didn't understand that then. 
Leah the outsider, the unattractive, the rejected, because she exercised faith toward the Lord, she got her life back. It's as though Leah moved ahead of Jacob at this point in understanding the gospel. Now, why would God choose Leah to mother Judah? Well, why not Rachel? Well, the answer, I think, is right in front of us in verse 31. The scripture says, when the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, he came to her. And now we know. See, the Old Testament tells, shows us what the New Testament tells us. God loves those who no one else loves. God is attracted to the weak because of his gracious nature. It reveals the nature of God's grace. God wants those that no one else wants. You see, the New Testament portrays Jesus as the bridegroom. He's not merely the king and we're the servants. He's not merely the shepherd and we're the sheep. He's the bridegroom and we're the bride. And though we may physically look like Leah, to Christ, we look like Rachel. That's why God chooses the foolish to confound the wise. That's why God chooses the weak to confound the strong. That's why God uses the things that are despised, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that you and I can understand the grace of God. So in conclusion this morning, if there's anyone here this morning that feels unappreciated, insignificant, regretting your lot in life, your place in life, whether it's been because of choices you made or because of other people's choices, may I encourage you this morning, Jesus is attracted to you. You are Rachel. In his eyes. He is drawn to you. And as you take your attention and focus off of other things and people. That you think will give you meaning. And pleasure and satisfaction. You will find that he's all you need. Otherwise. In the morning. It will always be Leah. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the love that you have for us and the grace that you show to all of us, to even the least, the very least. And Father, this morning, we rejoice in the example we have of your response to Leah. Father, help us to never make idols out of other people, other things, and other relationships. May our focus, may the desire of our heart be our relationship with you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. For it's in his name we pray.